0: This is Open to Hope Radio, featuring Dr. Gloria Horsley and her daughter, Dr. Heidi Horsley, coming to you on behalf of the Open to Hope Foundation, dedicated to those who are looking for hope after loss.
1: Welcome to the Open to Hope Show in partnership with the Compassionate Friends. I'm your host, Dr. Heidi Horsley, and I'm here today with my mom and co-host, Dr. Gloria Horsley. Hi, Mom.
2: Hi, Hyde. I am so happy today because we've got a psychiatrist coming on the show, and I just think it's so important in the area of grief and loss to talk about some really tough issues related to complicated grief, antidepressants, antidepressants, those kinds of things. And I feel like we're really lucky to have him on. You want to introduce him, Heidi?
1: Absolutely. And like you said, Mom, we are going to be talking today about caring for the bereaved, and we're going to be talking with Dr. John Rourke. Um, Dr. John Rourke is a retired clinical associate professor of psychiatry at Stanford University Medical Center, a thanontologist, mm. medical ethicist, award-winning author of Dying Dignified, The Health Professional's Guide to Care. Welcome to the show, John. Thank you.
2: Hi, John. It's great to have you on. And uh, I know you used to work with Kara in uh, Palo Alto in my area as a supervisor, but you've gone on to start your own new uh, bereavement program on Bainbridge Island outside of Seattle. Is that, that right?
3: That's correct. That's correct. When we moved up here, I realized there was a hole in the local volunteer community uh, in uh, an island of 23,000 people with a lot of aging folks. Uh, that there was not uh, any kind of car-like provision to provide volunteer peer support for people dealing with bereavement. So we trained up our first eight volunteers uh, last August, and we have a program called Compassionate Companions that's up and running and now serving about a dozen uh, grieving people on Bainbridge Island.
2: Well, how fantastic. How did you get into the field of grief and loss?
3: I was drawn to this field as a first year medical student at Stanford back in nineteen seventy seven when I uh, volunteered to um, to um, be a teaching assistant for an um, older faculty member and chairman of the department Tom Gonda, who was leading a, a course on uh, problems surrounding death and uh, that got me connected with CARA that uh, that had started up just a year before and I as a freshman medical student got volunteer training and started sitting with people who were bereaved or dying uh, and uh, trying to help them out.
1: John, I love this history because you were a real pioneer in the field. I wouldn't think that a lot of people had that kind of an interest back in 1977.
3: No, actually, Elizabeth Cooper Ross came in (laughs) and helped train us. Wow. At that point, the field was small enough that people like her were still talking to freshmen and medical student volunteers. (laughs)
2: Well, that's um, really interesting. And then you you did this Dying Dignified, the Healthcare Professionals Guide to Care. I wanted to talk to you about that. What does that mean, Dying Dignified?
3: Um, well, we wanted it to uh, – it, it, was, it was written with uh, Dr. Thomas Gonda, the, the man who got me started in the field. And um, we wanted to take the process of dying that at that point seemed – so terribly undignified in the way it was happening, especially in Stanford Hospital and other university medical centers. So we we wanted to take everybody into a place where the whole process was more dignified for all of them. So you know what uh,
2: you know what are the major issues for healthcare professionals as far as taking care of people who are you know, well.
3: The, the problem that a lot of healthcare professionals run into around taking care of the dying and also dealing with bereavement is that um, that the, a lot of doctors see their task as keeping people alive, and they don't necessarily make the trans the, the transition once um, prolonging life becomes onerous for the person receiving care to taking care of that person through the dying process. Now there's a wonderful uh, specialty called palliative care that's developed in the last 20 years uh, that is changing that a lot, but especially back in the 70s when we got started, there was nothing like that at all, and uh, people who were dying often felt more victimized by the medical system that
1: helped by it. Wow. You know, I know that you're, you're a doctor, and... and... One of the questions I get a lot, and I'm a psychologist for my clients is they want to know if they're clinically depressed when they're right. grieving and I wanted you yeah. to speak a little bit about that because I've noticed you know a lot of a lot of clients do end up being diagnosed as clinically depressed by right. psychiatrists, et cetera, and by other people
3: yes yeah it's it's a very tough call to make because if you look at the what are uh the primary symptoms of depression, they are all floridly present in people with acute grief as well. And so to immediately jump to the prescription pad when somebody's dealing with a natural uh, psychological phenomenon uh, can seem to people like it's sort of trivializing their grief or, or in some ways medicalizing it instead of treating it as a psychological process. Now, that being said, There is a place for medication in in people who are bereaved, uh, but uh, it it needs to be approached with caution, and uh, and you need to give people a chance to go through the normal grieving process before you just reach for the prescription cap.
1: And what are your thoughts about the increase in antidepressant use in the last, I don't know, five or ten years? It seems like it's gone up significantly
3: well it has and in in some ways you know that's um that's a beneficial thing because depression is an illness that most studies show is substantially substantially undertreated in the United states um so you know we don't want to deprive bereaved people of uh, of proper medical care um, when when they can benefit from it but on the other hand um Antidepressants, like any psychotropic medications, are not entirely benign drugs, and they do have side effects and do, in some people, actually interfere with them feeling the full spectrum of emotions. So there's a real downside to prescribing antidepressants unless they're absolutely needed.
2: One of the concerns that I have with antidepressants, frankly, is there's no follow-up. I mean, I get concerned when you're you know, meta, your internist. Gives you, or another uh, doctor gives you a medication. There's no follow-up, and I I feel like some people uh, want sad people who are uh, sad because of a loss uh, to go home with something in their hand, which is a script for a medication.
1: Well, like you said, Mom, I don't like. I I get a concern when general practitioners are are giving people these things, and they don't have follow-up. And I'd rather that they see a psychiatrist Mm -hmm. if they're feeling that that's what they need.
3: Well, that's, the, that's. I mean, right now, 80% of uh, antidepressants in the United States are prescribed by non-psychiatrists.
1: That's by- 80%? And- that's wow. amazing.
3: Yeah, so so the vast majority of antidepressants, and also all psychotropic medications, that, that's true. Wow. That, the vast majority of them are not prescribed by psychiatrists. So there just aren't that many psychiatrists, from, right. for one thing, most places in the country, so it's uh it's a real phenomenon that um, that primary care clinicians who are often frankly way too busy to uh, to do the kind of follow up mm-hmm. ideal uh, you're right. people are sent out of the office with a prescription, and if they don't call to make another appointment that can get refilled without it even being monitored, which is really problematic right
2: yeah. well, I wanted to ask you what. Advice would you give to someone who's listening to the show who's newly bereaved?
3: Um, well, you know, one of the tests I use uh, it, for the first of all, in in the first six weeks, I think it's really unrealistic for anyone to be diagnosed as clinically depressed. Um, you know, unless the signs are just so florid that they're almost garrulant. Right, um, you know, barring that kind of extreme depression where it's obvious to even to lay people that something's terribly wrong here um a significant degree of depression is totally normal, so once you get out about six to eight weeks, um you know one of the tests I like to use is is the grandkid test. If you can mention a grandkid to an older patient and you don't get a smile uh even. Uh-huh. off that person. That's uh, that's an indicator that um, that that person might be clinically depressed if they also have all the other constellation of what are called neurovegetative symptoms uh, of depression, you know, which are basically disturbances of the functions necessary to maintain life. So disturbances of sleep, appetite, um, etc.
1: And and uh. John what about what about complicated grief? What are your thoughts about complicated grief
3: um complicated grief you you can't even diagnose that early um complicated grief is going to take place when uh, usually it's defined kind of as a clinical syndrome where where just the regular grief kind of prolongs past a year or a year and a half. You know, in that first year, it's very difficult to make a diagnosis of complicated grief unless the actual loss itself is extremely complicated, like a sudden death or a particularly traumatic death or a death by violence. Uh, um, You know, those are more likely to cause a complicated grief uh, than, uh, than the more usual ways that people die.
2: Do you have any special treatments that you like for complicated grief, or where somebody's uh, reliving traumatic events?
3: Um, I definitely uh, sub- subscribe to um, the sort of usual PTSD kind of array of symptoms. Of
2: Which stands for post-traumatic stress syndrome, right? For those who that, don't know.
3: Correct. Correct. Yeah. So, um, so you know, the, the, there's a you know a whole variety of Effective treatment modalities ranging from cognitive-behavioral ones to more supportive psychotherapeutic ones, all of which are shown to be effective in, in treating complicated grief. So you kind of tailor the treatment to the personality of the individual. You know, for example, a Silicon Valley engineer who has complicated grief is probably going to be more likely uh, cooperative with and adherent to a cognitive-behavioral strategy for treating this complicated grief than somebody who might be more inclined toward benefiting from depth psychotherapy for us. Mm-hmm. Well, you I, know, I like how, this idea. How about
2: the concern that uh, psychiatrists aren't being trained in talk therapy anymore, as I understand it,
3: or well, required that, to take they're, it? They're, that, they're being trained less in talk therapy, absolutely, and so you know, th- basically the medical insurance industry and Uh, Organized Medicine has kind of decided that they want psychiatrists to be seeing patients for a 15-minute med appointment and for psychotherapy to be handled by psychologists or master's-level psychotherapy uh, trainees. Mm -hmm. And so we're kind of uh, bucking uh, a national trend that has decided that psychiatrists are too expensive to be providing Mm -hmm. psychotherapy. And that being said, I don't know of any... um, psychotherapy training program or psych- psychiatry training program that don't at least equip people with the um, supportive psychotherapy skills to adequately conduct um, a supportive psychotherapy for a bereaved patient. That they, they still generally all get that much training, even if they don't get training in the more sophisticated, dynamic psychotherapies that you might be thinking about.
1: Yeah, I know a lot of my clients are frustrated, and it's 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 not the fault of the psychiatrist. They get frustrated because they because they go to see their psychiatrist here in New York, and like you said, John, they only they can only see them for fifteen minutes because the psychiatrists don't have the time. They're not getting reimbursed to see a you know exactly. someone for fifty minutes.
3: Exactly, and I I never had less than a fifty minute appointment in my whole career, so I'm kind of a I'm kind of a dinosaur. In <laughs>
1: And it's a shame because some psychiatrists want more time. They really do, oh, and, they, and they can't. They, they don't have that option. No. You know what I love that you said, which I've never really heard of before, when you talked about kind of pairing a personality with a theoretical orientation. In other words, talking about, well, if you're working with an engineer, he's more head-based, you might want to use cognitive behavioral therapy. Exactly. Which makes total sense. I love that idea, thinking about the client that you're working with.
3: Well, one of the things to remember about psychotherapy is that uh, there's not really one right right way it mm-hmm. has been really demonstrated. And so the ability to use different modalities is part of what, uh, what I think a good professional in our field ought to have uh, to tailor it to the patient.
1: I agree with you. And, you know, uh, we're, my mom and I are always saying to people listening out there, if you feel like you do need professional help, remember you need to be a good fit with the with the doctor Definitely. that you go to, and so sometimes you need to shop around. And if the first person's not a good fit, you need to go to somebody else.
3: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, that that, you, that person needs to be a good enough fit that you feel better walking out the door than you did walking in.
1: I like that, don't you, Gloria? Yeah.
2: Yeah, I do. That's a great point. Uh, really good point. And don't be afraid to. You know, decide to go to another therapist if you feel like you're that's not feeling right. really better.
3: You're not going to hurt anybody's feelings, or if you do, it's not your problem.
2: <laughs> exactly. So, And it helps to know people who know something about grief and loss
3: also. Absolutely. It's important to, to work with people who have um, training and expertise in that. I,
1: I like the litmus test. If you don't feel better walking out than you did walking in, you might need to think about going somewhere else. Yeah, that's right.
2: So tell us how people find you. Are you on the internet? Have you got a site, or does your um, uh, your organization I'm, have a site?
3: Uh, no, actually. Well, I'm I'm just at jerewarkmd at gmail dot com. So. That's, All that's,
2: right. Uh, and does does the Bainbridge Island program have anything, or do how do I get how would I know to get in touch if I happen to live there? That,
3: that's, uh, you could reach them through the uh, Island Volunteer Caregivers, IVC. Have a website, dot uh, org, and that's how you reach the Compassionate Campaign.
2: Okay, and and to get your book, Dying Dignified: The Health uh, Professionals' Guide to Care, I'm sure we can uh, go on Amazon, right?
3: That's right. There's there's still copies floating around on Amazon. All these years <laughs> later, go figure. <laughs>
2: That's great, awesome. So, so what do what do you think is going to happen with the uh, future of these guys? And if you had or and gals who are going into the area of death and dying and grief and loss, give them one piece of advice.
3: Well, yeah, I mean, think about the fact that you've got the baby boomers. All all of us baby boomers are now aging into the period where we start turning to the obituaries page first thing when we open the paper. And so there's going to be an enormous need for these services. So, in, anybody who, and, and if you want to be providing these services professionally, I'd recommend you know getting master's level psychotherapy training or doctoral level psychotherapy training, uh, because that's uh, that's where you're actually going to be able to get reimbursed for it. Um, so, so, so the field uh, the field gonna
1: be, is only going to grow larger as because we are living longer, right John?
3: That's right. We're living and longer like you... and there's more of us and as we as we live, uh, the people we love die and
1: we need help with this. And and the and we want to die dignified. Absolutely. And have some kind of control over it as much as we Very can good. at least.
2: And That's over our uh, moving through the grieving process also,
1: mm-hmm.
2: it is important Absolutely. to have that kind of care and help and support. And uh, it's, a, it's a tough Absolutely.
3: process. Absolutely. It's a tough process. It is something we, we actually do have the factory equipment to deal with. We are born with the natural mechanisms to to grieve effectively with proper support.
1: I like that idea. Because people yeah, worry. They it. worry about it. They worry that their, their grief will overwhelm them and that they won't be able, they'll just be in a fetal position for the rest of their lives, especially early on.
0: Oh, yes.
3: Oh, yes. So I saw um, a funny uh, um, artist's uh, rendering of the stages of grief and uh, as an alternative to Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's stages. And it showed one side said, Crazy and the other side said less crazy and there were two errors going between them and those were the stages of grief. Crazy and less crazy.
1: <laughs> I love that. That is so that is how that normalizes it too.
3: Absolutely. Yeah.
2: Absolutely. absolutely. So so
1: if you all are out there feeling crazy or less crazy, you're just going through the normal stages of grief. There you go. <laughs> right, mom?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I was, I was felt very crazy many times after my son was killed. Many, many times. Oh my
1: Definitely, it's a normal thing. Well, we love the Elizabeth Kubler Ross Foundation and her work. My mom and I are both yeah. uh, on the advisory board for the organization, and oh, think fantastic. very highly of the work Elizabeth's done, and and love her son Ken, Ken Ross, who's also yeah. been on our show. So, um, so good, yeah, so good. They're great. And,
3: and, and, and she has a son named Alan too. Is, has he been? Have you been involved? We
1: only know Ken. No, Ken is the one that we're most in touch with. Got it. So uh, Got he's it. he's fabulous. Yeah.
3: Yeah, she, I miss her still. She was a wonderful woman.
1: Yeah, she really laid the groundwork for us to talk she about did. these kind of things. She so, did. So, John, I want to thank you so much for all the work that you're doing and for coming you're on welcome. our show today, and thank you for your book, Dying Dignified, The Health Professional's Guide to Care.
3: Well, you're welcome.
2: Thank you, John. It was great talking to you.
3: It's my, it's my privilege.
2: Well, we want to thank everybody for listening to our show today. And, uh, Heidi, it's just uh, really interesting to have uh, a professional psychiatrist on talking about some of the issues. And uh, it sounds like John's doing some great work.
1: Especially somebody that was really at the forefront of this field and that has seen so much evolve and change over the years.
2: Mm -hmm. And You know what I love? I love Mm -hmm. that he's the retired quote, but he's up on Bainbridge Island outside of Seattle doing this work. I mean, it's just awesome.
1: It absolutely is.
2: Yeah. It's a wonderful field to be in because it's an area where you see people go from really bad circumstances to to recovery. It's pretty amazing. uh... What do you think, Heidi?
1: Oh, absolutely. I always say that. I say, you know, there's nothing depressing about this work. You meet people at the darkest points in their life and you walk them back into the light, you know, and give them hope when they're grieving.
2: Absolutely. Well, we want to thank everybody for uh, listening to our show today, and we want to remind you that to visit us at opentohope.com, and please tell your friends and family about uh, Open to Hope as a resource. And as Heidi and I always want to say, if you've lost hope, please lean on ours until you find your own, and God bless.
0: You've been listening to Open to Hope Radio, hosted by Doctors Gloria and Heidi Horsley. Like today's edition, all of our past programs are available on demand at opentohope.com, along with helpful articles, videos, resources, and links to help get you through the toughest time of your life. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter and sign up for our monthly newsletter. Again, that's opentohope.com. Check it out today. Then be sure to stop by next Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific time when we'll be posting another edition of Open to Hope Radio. Remember, others have been where you are they made it through and you can too as long as you're open to hope